Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 265, and I found a really interesting stat to go with that number. The U.S. Women's National Team, they earned their 265th win versus Ukraine on July 10th, 2005. This game is significant for a few reasons. 1996 gold medalist and 1999 Women's World Cup champion Tiffany Milbritt scored her 100th international goal in that game in front of her hometown crowd at Merlot Field in Portland. And a 22-year-old Carly Lloyd came on as a second-half sub for Julie Foudy to earn her first senior cap. And hey, current Utah Royals goalkeeper Nicole Barnhart earned a shutout in that game. All right, so today's chats. First, I spoke with Alex Vehar from the Salt Lake Tribune about the Utah Royals 2019 season. We talked about the Nicole Barnhart renaissance, uh, Laura Harvey trying to find a replacement for Kelly O'Hara at outside back, um, watching Amy Rodriguez and Kristen Press come together, the ultimately frustrating finish to the season, and also Stephanie Lee's evolution as the GM of the team. And then I spoke with Grant Wiedenfeld, a new contributor to KeeperNotes.com, based in Houston, but a longtime follower of NWSL. Uh, We spoke about the 2019 Houston Dash season under first year head coach James Clarkson and made some guesses on what we think could happen next year. So enjoy these chats, but please also take a look at keepernotes.com, posted a few articles recently, and there's information about the upcoming women's soccer conference, aka Wosico, in Cary, North Carolina, the day before the NWSL final. So Saturday, October 26th, in Cary. It's a great event in the afternoon. All women soccer fans are welcome. Information at keepernotes.com. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Alex Fehar, the soccer beat reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. Alex, I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about the Utah Royals FC season for 2019. Um, I'm sure a little frustrating for local fans. Uh, I feel in some ways it was stronger than than 2018, even though their finish was a tiny bit lower. But 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 what do you think? That's uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Um, and I love the nickname, the keeper. That's such a great nickname. That you can be a, you can be in soccer or you can be like a horror movie antagonist, which is great. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, in terms of the season for the Royals, uh, I, I started right when their season ended last season and they kind of, you know, they, they, they won their last game of the season kind of like on a high note, very similar to this year. And, and I remember Laura Harvey telling me at that time last year, you know, we did, we did an okay job, you know, next year we're going to gun for the NWSL title. You know, this team has a lot of talent, all this stuff. And um, I think kind of at the same point this season, they're, they're, the organization is obviously very frustrated. Um, I have a story coming out very soon where uh, general manager Stephanie Lee kind of says that it's hard for her not to imagine the season as a failure. Um, you know, they, they were they were so high on on their talent, bringing in Vero. Um, obviously, it was going to be a difficult kind of. Um, they were, it was going to be difficult to figure out how they were going to navigate playing through the World Cup and having so many players out, um, you know, like a lot of the a lot of the league did. Um, but I think that they ended up very frustrated and disappointed because um, they they underachieved, and I think that fans think that. Um, I definitely it's definitely my opinion that they had enough talent to uh, break the top four in the NWSL to get a playoff spot, and um, you know they had that month of September. I think they lost all. I'm not mistaken, all four of their games, or it was a four-game losing streak in September before their final game against Houston, which was a win. Um, but that, I mean, that spelled doom for their season. So um, they're really not happy with the way that things ended up, even though they beat Houston to, uh, to end the season. Well, and especially that surge in August after a strong start to the opening of the season when you look at points collected, but 
all of those wins were really narrow. They're mostly one zero games, you know, uh, some zero zero draws. Uh, and finally seeing Amy Rodriguez and Christian Press have the opportunity to click as an attacking partnership. Um, also seeing Lola Bonta getting in the mix, Katie Stengel getting some goals late in the season. Um, and of course, the you know, separately, the whole challenge of, of having to find someone to, to play where they expected Kelly O'Hare to play when she came back from the World Cup. But that surge in August, um, seeing some three and four goal games that we had never seen before from the Royals, uh, you know, really must have given a lot of hope, not only to the team, but to the fans. And I, and I think, you know, across the league, across the country, like, oh, Utah could really sneak in to that fourth place spot. Um, but what do you think happened between August and September? It's a good question. I think that they were they were playing so well throughout that stretch in August. They kind of had this little this little team meeting in July, kind of figure out figuring out a way how to get Vero and Kristen and Amy all excuse me all playing uh, in an attacking style that was going to get them the ball where they liked it and kind of give them better opportunities to finish. That was one of their biggest problems early in the season is kind of finishing first of all not creating enough chances and then when they actually started to create more chances as the season rolled along, they had some trouble finishing them. And that, that stretch in August, they really had kind of both of, both of them clicking. Um, and they, they were pretty good defensively as well. I think that what happened was, um, for some reason, the, the attack, like Kristen and Amy just, they – they were playing so well in August. I think there was a game where I even had to write about the fact that it was a, like there was one game where they each scored a goal in the same game, and it hadn't happened for the whole season. And then right. much after I wrote that, they stopped doing it. Like Kristen stopped scoring. Amy stopped scoring. I think there was a time where there, um, Vero and Kristen were a little banged up, and I think that, you know, they missed a game or two here or there, and I think that really messes with them. I think that when – when they don't have those two players up top clicking, it's very difficult for them to score because they don't have a lot of, other than Vero, they don't really have a lot of super dynamic playmakers. Um, Kristen can kind of do that, but I think I think they really wanted her to kind of be, you know, the one of the finishers alongside um, Amy Rodriguez. And when you and when you kind of don't have that, they they really struggled to score, and I think that really got to them. And um, it's interesting. Laura said something very interesting at the after the game Saturday, where she thought that during that during that stretch where in August where all of the games meant something, right? Like it, if they if they were to win one here, one there, I think they all called them like must win games or like Laura kept referring to each game as like a cup final. Um, so obviously there was a lot of pressure on them because they were trying to climb back into that top four. Um, and maybe she was thinking that maybe that pressure kind of got to them a little bit. Whereas in July, when they were starting to play really well, they were kind of out of the playoff mix at that time. And they were, and at least what Laura thought was maybe they were just playing more free because there was less pressure on them. So, you know, I think that's something, and she addressed this um, on Saturday uh, for next season. She thinks that, that that kind of mentality is something that they're going to have to really look deeply at, you know, when when to figure out or how to figure out how to play more freely and maybe putting less pressure on themselves, even though there might be some external pressure to, you know, during a part of the season where, um, you know, they're playing teams that are hard to beat versus other parts of the season where they're playing teams that are below them and, and figuring out a way to handle business um, in both of those times versus just one of them. And I think that's part of the building block of becoming an elite club, which, you know, clearly Deloitte Hansen has intended from, from the beginning is, you know, exerting that pressure, feeling that pressure all the time. We've, we've heard North Carolina and Portland talk about this a lot, you know, it's just the higher expectations and that extra pressure and, and trying to thrive on pressure. So it's, you know, I think it's a, you know, probably part of the, the growth process for the club. Um, it's just interesting that it, it, it seemed like it was the FIFA break, uh, you know, late August, early September that, 
kind of stymied um, their offensive progress. They did get that um, great win at home against Portland right after the break uh, with Vero and Kristen Press creating the goal that Becky Sauerbrunn headed in for her first first ever Utah goal. But since then, right. then it was, like you mentioned, four straight losses until the, the finale versus Houston. Um a few other pieces I want to talk about is one, Nicole Barnhart. Uh, she played every game on the air. So that meant that Abby Smith was on the bench the whole year. She had a fantastic year, I would say, up until the last few games. And and I, I don't believe you can ever fault a, a keeper by herself because obviously, you know, goals conceded is really a mix of the keeper and, and the back line in front of you. But there were just a couple of goals allowed. I, I'm thinking mostly of Jalen Hinkle's goal uh, against Utah last month, where it just seemed like she's just a little bit off her game. But thoughts thoughts on, on Barnhart's performance across the season? Yeah, I think I think you hit it hit the nail on the head. She had somebody asked me if I, you know, if I could pick an MVP for the Royals, who would it be? And the first person I thought of was Nicole Barnhart. Um, she had the most um, shutouts in the entire league, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And Correct. I think that she was one of the players, or she was probably one of, if not the only player that you can say really saved some of those games for. I mean, I think that Utah has the worst record if she doesn't have a year that she had um, with all those shutouts and just kind of being being that last line of defense. Um, yeah, there, uh, toward the end of the season, it's true. She she kind of was off her game a little bit. I remember there was a goal. Maybe it was the same one that you're describing, but there was a goal that was it was kind of like it was a cross that was floated very close to the um, very close to the goal, and the ball literally went in between. Uh, Barnhart's gloves and into the goal and it wasn't even a shot it was like it was one of the most it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in terms of soccer and my covering soccer is is very I'm a baby soccer reporter but um, (laughs) it was just it was very strange to see something like that where it's not even a shot and the goalkeeper is right there her hands are literally on the ball and it still goes in Um, and I just think you know moments like that for any athlete they're going to have mental lapses and, and all that stuff so uh, while she didn't have the strongest finish to the season, um, I think that she was she was probably I don't know about far and away, but I think that she was one of the Royals' best players last year. Um, and especially for somebody her age, I think she's almost thirty eight years old. For her to just still be that she good, just and make turned, that kind she of an just age. turned thirty eight. Right, exactly. She I think like a couple weeks ago or something, or, or a week yeah. ago. Yeah. So so um. You know, for for somebody um, with that much experience, um, and and at that point of their career, to to still be impacting game in and game out, um, I think that's that's commendable. All right, so let's talk about some of the other players on Utah's roster who don't necessarily get a lot of the a lot of the limelight because you know that they usually don't have stats on the score sheet but i still think they've been so integral to um the utah squad like desiree scott she's played every minute that she's been available this season mallory weber i think huge um addition for the team playing left back katie bowen she and uh, gunny yon's daughter filling in at right back for what would be kelly o'hara's spot though i don't like to call it really her spots and she has not been available very much uh in her two years with utah you look back and she's had a lot of obviously international absences also a lot of injury so i don't feel like laura harvey ever got to really take advantage of acquiring kelly o'hara from sky blue before the 2018 season but so let's I want to hear your thoughts um, as someone who's on the ground in Utah about what Desiree Scott and Katie Bowen and Mallory, Mallory rubber have brought to the team this season. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that you mention Kelly O'Hara's spot, quote unquote, I like for as much as she wasn't out there with the Royals, every, every time I see her not in the lineup, while I'm at games or I'm at practices or whatever, I keep thinking like, oh, that, why isn't, you know, Kelly Hare is not playing today, but like I'm more used to not seeing her play than actually seeing her play for Utah. 
um, I just think that she's kind of like one of those names where you kind of, if, if you see her, you kind of expect her to be there all the time, even though, you know, the reality is kind of the opposite. But to your point, yeah, um, you know, Desiree Scott, I mean, I, another, what another great nickname, the Destroyer. I mean, just the nicknames in soccer are so good. Um, but she, <laughs> she, she, uh, yeah, she had a very solid year. Um, you know, sometimes I don't really notice when she's out there, but I think that for, for a player in that position, uh, you don't really want, and this is what people tell me, you don't really want to notice a player like that. You just want, a, you know, a player at uh, defensive mid to kind of do her job and, and, and kind of muck things up in the midfield. And she does a very good job of that. Um, you know, so, so she, she, to your point, she had a very good year. Um, Katie Bowen, I think, uh, probably didn't have uh, that strong of a year. I mean, she did lose a starting spot kind of toward the end of the season. Um, but, you know, that could also be, you know, Laura just trying to finagle lineups and stuff and trying to figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't and, um, um, and all that. But uh, I think the interesting thing with Ghana Yon's daughter is that she also lost the starting spot, but um, it was kind of like to to kind of bolster the attack by putting Katie Stengel in there, and that actually was working for a while. Um, and then she kind of won it back at that at that outside back spot that Kelly would have been in had she been healthy. And she did a great job in, in those moments, too. I remember making a Twitter thread of, of GIFs of just her, like, breaking up plays and all these different ways. That, and this was a position that she didn't really play very much um, this season. And she's kind of thrust in there. Uh, and she, she held her own more than... Um, I think probably more than expected. So, I mean, I'm not sure how, what her role is going to be next season or whatever, but uh, she definitely kind of proved that she can, that she can play defense in, in multiple positions, at least um, in my opinion. And then you mentioned Mallory Weber, a player that they got because Taylor Lytle got, uh, got injured unexpectedly and, and didn't play the rest of the season when she got hurt. So they brought her in from Portland um, after Portland waived her. And uh, this is another player who, played basically in the midfield for her whole career. And then Laura, after one practice, said, hey, let's try you without that back and see what happens. And she you know, <laughs> had a couple of, you know, shaky moments. But for the most part, she played really well at that spot. Um, and, and I think the players really, really liked her at that spot, too. And kind of some of her um, attacking, attacking tendencies uh, tend to, you know, come out. Um, when she plays there, um, I remember her telling me that she kind of likes it back there because she gets to have more of the ball when she's when she's going all the way up the field. Um, so that's it's kind of it's funny. I think they found something in Mallory um, where she can be kind of a little bit malleable on the field, um, and that will probably help, especially if Kelly continues to be somebody who uh, who struggles with injury. Um, and I remember Michelle Maimon, uh, who was a rookie, uh, she started in Kelly's place the first couple games, and then she right. got, a, got a little bit of injury, and then she was out of the rotation. So they, 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 they've, they've had to do so much just at that position this year. It, it's like a I don't it's like a just a, a rotating just I don't know a tapestry of players that rotates I don't know if there's a word for that but it, you know that spot rotated so much this season and I think that's part of the reason why they that the Royals didn't really reach their potential because like if you don't if, if the lineup is constantly changing you know the players will always say like they train with each other all week and you know the, the it doesn't matter who starts in the 11 but I don't think that's necessarily true I think that consistency and chemistry on the field matters a lot and the more that you kind of play with the same groups of players the you know the more you you don't have to think as much on the field and you kind of had a, have a lot more cohesion when you're playing so just a lot of the the lineup shifting this year um i think also just kind of contributed to to their underachievement well and i think it's important to differentiate that you know, sure, they all train with each other, so the lineup shouldn't matter. But the question is, how much do some of the players get to train with them? You know, we know uh, with the international breaks and, and other issues that sometimes these coaches don't have all their players available. Or you even look at um, Diana Matheson, the club wasn't able to use her the entire year. 
you right. know, she was injured uh, before the World Cup and, you know, returned pretty late in the season and just couldn't get healthy. So, like, there was never really an announcement about her. And you just think it's like, wow, there was an, that was another big acquisition that Utah got before the club started play in 2018 that, you know, probably would have been able to, you know, help out in, in, in the midfield. Um and I still think it's uh, in this day and age and, and using that cliche, I mean, in the seventh going on eighth season of NWSL, I still think it's pretty hard to build a team quickly that's that becomes a contender. You know, even when you factor in that Utah absorbed the, the Kansas City contracts, there was still a lot of player movement, you know, for Laura Harvey to build her own style club. So it's it's going to be really fascinating um, to see what happens in the offseason, especially whether or not, um, you know, we see any expansion and how an expansion draft will affect things. But last question for you, Alex, um, just thoughts on, on Stephanie Lee. She's really... Um, um, I would say, well, I can't say the only women general manager um, because Elise LeHue obviously was at Chicago and now Sky Blue. But I would say for an expansion, well, not even expansion, but new franchise, you know, that, that she was in that role at the very beginning. She wasn't coming into a club that already existed, you know, um, and uh, the previous general manager of Rail Salt Lake, Craig Weibel, you know, uh, wanted her, you know, specifically decided last year, he, he said to me, he's like, I'm planning for her to run all of this. I don't have time to run this. I want her to be GM. And she was someone who came over uh, from the Rain franchise with Laura Harvey. So, so thoughts on just, you know, her as a general manager and how she works with Laura Harvey. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I love this question because I get to, I love when I get to just kind of talk about my work. Um, I, I read a big profile <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a little it's a little navel gazy, but I think a lot of reporters are. But um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So I wrote a, a big profile about Stephanie Lee earlier in the season, and uh, you know I talked to uh, her former boss at in, in Seattle. I talked to somebody who used to work at a children's museum in Seattle with her before she got into soccer, and I talked to Laura obviously, and she seems to be a person that is just is is great with the players he obviously has a great relationship with Laura Harvey um they they did come together but they didn't exactly come together like like when Laura got the job um Stephanie purposely didn't tell Laura um that she was going to apply for the Utah job because she didn't want it she didn't want to pressure Laura into be into like saying you know oh we have to get her because I know her you know she kind of let it let the chips fall where they may um but it's it's interesting. Um, she coming from a, a place for her where she used to be kind of like a team administrator, and she kind of had a lot closer relationships with the play with players before she transitioned into the general manager role. I remember her telling me that you know this is a role where she's kind of still trying to find herself in. She's kind of still trying to navigate like you know how to how to be Laura's boss instead of you know more closely her coworker. How to be a little right. bit more separated from the players. Um, how to be a little bit more separated from the player. So when she has to say, you know, hey, we have to trade you or, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, where, uh, you know, she's coming from, you know, just kind of like a like a more of a supervisor role than a, like a buddy-buddy role. And um, I think that probably this offseason is going to be when she faces probably her biggest test because, um, you know, she kind of had this, this year of, it's interesting, like last year she got a lot of help from, from Craig Weibel, who's now no longer with the RSO organization. Um, right. but they kind of, you know, did it in tandem and Laura helped a lot because um, she also used to be the general manager while she was in Seattle. Um, and this year was kind of all uh, Stephanie's show. Um, you know, she, she deserves credit for getting, um, for, for picking up Mallory Weber. She deserves credit for um, her and Laura both for getting Vera Boquette on the team. Um, she deserves some credit for getting Rachel Corsi. Um, but this offseason, with with, a, with another disappointing finish uh, for the Royals, missing the playoffs for the second straight year, and next year, um, obviously, you know, this team is talented enough the way it is to, you know, break into the top four. But I think that they don't just want to barely make it. I think they want to contend for a title. And this offseason is really going to kind of show whether or not 
Stephanie is like that kind of general manager and whether and if if Laura stays, which she said that she plans to stay, even though she's not going to take the, the women's national team job. Um, it's I'm interested to see how that tandem is go, like what players are they going to pick what players if there is an expansion um, and I think it's likely that there will be at least for one team um, from what I've heard. They're, uh, you know, who are they going to protect? Who are they not going to protect? Who are they going to, who are they going to try to to bring into the organization? Um, is Laura going to have to change her style of play again? They had to do it this uh, this year. They they had a new formation as compared to to the season prior. So are they going to keep their style of play? Are they going to change their tactics again next year? That remains to be seen. So there's a lot of kind of questions going into into next year with this team. Um, and I think that Stephanie's definitely at the center of it. It's going to be really interesting this offseason uh, with not only possible expansion, but obvi- obviously uh, a new national team coach should be named very soon and, you know, who will be called up and all those things. So much, so much to look forward to. But Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insight on the Utah Royals 2019 season. And, and I hope we'll be talking again in 2020. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for having me. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with a new contributor for KeeperNotes.com and Houston Dash aficionado, Grant Wiedenfeld, uh, Sport Parade on Twitter. Grant, happy for you to, to join me to talk about the Houston Dash 2019 season because it just doesn't seem right for me to talk about it with myself. I'm very excited to be here and talk <laughs> about it with you. So start off, let's talk highlights from this season from your perspective. This is mostly going to be your thoughts because again, like I'm supposed to be like, right. Like your Oprah Winfrey, somewhat unbiased host. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows it's hard for me to be that when I have such a background with the dash, but highlights of of 2019. Okay. Well, I also have a, have a background with the dash, uh, as my, uh, you know, my, my first and and most favorite team in the NWSL. So I'll just put that bias out there (laughs) right up front. And your CC Kaiser bias out there? I'm pulling for CC Kaiser and for Ali Prysock, who I've I've written bo- um, spotlights on both of them. This the CC one uh, with uh, some yeah great photos by uh, Michael and Gia is up on the site. So check that out. So yeah, check out the the CC Kaiser article uh, posted last week on KeeperNotes.com. But again, let me stop interrupting you. Highlights of the highlights. Season. I think. I think maybe the highlight for me was the Utah game. It was a Friday in September. It was a home game. The Dash had been um, off for away for a while. They, we had the FIFA break, and then they were at Chicago the previous weekend and lost 3-0. Yes, and, and so their, their playoff hopes were really in the balance uh, at that point. And when they came back home, uh, they beat Utah, who was higher than them on the table at that point. It really felt like they were poised for a postseason run. And building confidence like that, 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 that feeling uh, that, I could, that I saw that the team had of the players, the positivity that they had was, uh, I think, the highlight uh, for me. Calling that game, uh, you know, from the studio, I remember when it was 1-0 at, at halftime, and I was looking through my, my spreadsheets to see when is the last time that the Dash took a, a lead, uh, a shutout lead, mm-hmm. into, the, into the locker room at halftime, and it, it had been a while. And like you're saying, there was such a confidence, assertiveness about the team, and also calmness about the team that I hadn't seen for most of the season. Um, so that, that game was very satisfying, not only at halftime, but at the end, they're up 2-0. Yes, they did get up a, give up a goal late, but they didn't let the game get away from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that happen a lot earlier in the season. So that was a turning point. And, and I love what Sofia Huerta said to the press after that game. You know, of course, she had the brace in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that 
Um, you know, she's been really happy at Houston and just the level of professionalism. And she was, you know, I don't think any of the players were sure why it took so long, but like, it seemed like all the pieces were falling in place. And even then, I wasn't sure that they could go on a playoff run, but it certainly seemed like they were poised for a run that we hadn't seen from them, especially not this season. And I feel like the two games that followed, even though they were both losses on the on the score sheet, were a continuation of that run, uh, especially that we had four games in a row, you know, starting with that Utah game, the same starting 11. And to see them hold North Carolina to one goal and that one goal not even coming from the run of play, mm-hmm. right? And then to hold Portland to one goal at home after that pretty tough blowout in July. You know, I think by the time we got to the game, <laughs> the last home game midweek on ESPN two against spirit, I think they were, they were slowing down, but they still were in it in yeah. a way that, that we hadn't seen them a lot of the season. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they've come down a little bit, but in saying that the, the highlight for me was, that uh, that game two weeks into September, that does not mean that they bottomed out afterward. No, Far from it. No. I, this this was maybe the peak, and and there, there you could feel the potential then. But even listening then to the end of the, se- in the at the end of the season, it felt like they're. They, they feel that potential still and the positive energy around the club. Um, was it um, Christine Nairn who was interviewed uh, after her 100, 150th NWSL game talking about how much, uh, you know, the dash meant to her and wanting to uh, be back hopefully next year. That's the, that's that kind of positive spirit um, that I think is carrying through. Yeah, it's, it's an attitude um, that, you know, I certainly didn't sense at the end of last season. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think, maturity, maturation for, um, that, that's kind of happening with this team. Like, I, I loved what we saw from Haley Hansen mm-hmm. this season, uh, you know, deputized to play a position that wasn't her normal position. And she didn't want to play that position, but she knew it meant she could be a starter and meant she could contribute. And I, I thought she did you know, for the most part, a really good job at, at that position. Um, and as you mentioned before, Ali Prysock, I mean, not a lot of rookies come in and start at center back. Yes. Know? And um, I'm sure it wasn't the intention that she would start as much as she did. Um, but with the injuries and family issues for Claire Polkinghorne, that's what happened. But I, I think it bodes really well for the Houston Dash future that now you have a second-year player who already has that many minutes under her belt and, and that much, that much experience. I feel like there's, there's a lot of potential, uh, you know, going towards 2020. Yeah. I've been more focused on the, on the younger players, but it's what this team really has is the mix of veterans and younger players and how they've integrated them together, uh, is a, is a positive sign. Hanson doing some really exciting things on the wing, pushing up, uh, and, and holding her own, for the most part, uh, at that right back position. But, um, what I was seeing from somebody like Sofia Huerta was in, in moments where she, uh, is feeling the flow of things. She's really dangerous and, um, great attacker. I, th- I think that there's all these, all these different pieces of the team that when they have, when they have those moments, um, in that North Carolina game that, that they ended up losing by the by that one penalty shot, they they were so close to getting a goal uh, from uh, what felt like a lot of different directions. Right. That, uh, um, yeah, as a Dash fan, one is uh, uh, hopeful. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if that hope is ever green, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, I just remember talking to, to James for the Dash podcast after that North Carolina match, and he said he had never seen the locker room like that at halftime, that it wasn't a we can hold out for a draw or maybe if we're lucky, you know, we'll get a goal. It, it, he just The attitude from everyone was, we're going to win this game. We have this. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and ultimately they, they didn't, but that kind of attitude – um, is a huge piece 
going forward of, you know, building a, a playoff caliber squad. Yeah, they 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 uh, must look at themselves in the mirror and say, "Hey, we can hang with everybody." Uh, you know, the breaks didn't go our way, but they might go our way next time, and who knows what's going to happen. And of course, it's it's easy to look back at a lot of results, especially early in the season, of oh, that tie could have been a win, that loss could have been a tie, etc. Um, but you know, once once those games are passed, those those games are passed. So you know, now they it's it's time to put 2019 in the books and like all the other teams that didn't qualify for the playoffs, you got to start scouting, uh, whether it's collegiately or looking at Europe, um, thinking about trades, thinking about, uh, you know, what if there's an expansion draft, which means that any team that has more than two U S national team players wouldn't be able to protect all those players. So Mm -hmm. they would likely try to deal them so that you don't have them taken and you get nothing in return. Um, of course, we, you know, we still don't know if there's going to be expansion, so it doesn't make sense to speculate on that. Um, but what would you say would be the biggest need for the dash in 2020? Like the, you know, if you're going to acquire one player, you mm. know, and, you know, we should have, well, we'll have one more international slot next year because the one they traded to Orlando was just for 2019. Mm -hmm. So you already have at least one more international slot for 2020. So if you were to acquire a top international, which position would you want that player to be? Hmm. Um, Maybe, maybe I can't, I'm I'm, I'm not going to answer, answer the question the way you asked it. Uh, Jen, it's a very good one. (laughs) Partly because I'm being Are you diplomatic. Chicken? You're chicken. Okay. That's <laughs> well, partly, okay. partly because I'm being diplomatic. Partly out of uh, uh, perhaps uh, you know yeah, la- so you la- can, lack of expertise. It's easy for me to ask. It's harder for you to answer. Here's here's what I'll say. Um, in that the dash showed that they can hang with anyone. I don't feel like their losses were coming out of just one particular deficiency, one hole no. that you can plug. No. So any upgrade anywhere should, uh, you know, raise the level for everyone. So I'm not so, I'm not so certain that a particular position is what it has to be. Uh, it, it, it might not even require getting new players Either I'm, I'm, I love that possibility and dreaming about that, but there's the possibility of um, that we we've had all season of internal development. You, you heard of the players and, and James talking about how the team was better than their record. Right. Um, of course, you are what your record shows at a certain point <laughs> at the end of the season. You could say, you know, okay, it doesn't seven, matter that you were nine. better than your record. Um, yeah. You know, the, the the results speak for themselves, but. I'd like to believe that they really are better than their record. They, they can perform uh, better than their record shows, um, developing some confidence, some chemistry, um, you know, some, some sustained uh, attention that's, that can not, not let through uh, uh, goals here or there that seem to – these sort of lapses that, that, that almost balanced out their, their moments of brilliance. Um, it, the internal com- development could also happen as, uh, as just as important as, as another piece. Well, I'll be a little less diplomatic, but not completely um, frank. But bottom line, they do have open roster spots, mm-hmm. you know, so they can acquire somebody without having to cut anybody right now. And I would say anywhere on the spine that you could add a player, uh, particularly center back or center midfield mm. gives you more option. Um, you know, the spine usually controls things, mm-hmm. you know, um, even if you want to go into 2020 with Amber Brooks and Allie Pricex as your, as your starters, you know, you have to give yourself options. You know, we've seen that in this league, not only because of international call-ups, mm-hmm. but injuries or, at some points in the season, a very crowded schedule. I mean, when you look at what the Dash were able to do with games on 13th, let's see, September 13th, 17th, 21st, 25th, with two of those on the road, and they use the same 
starting 11 in all four games and, you know, still had, you know, a decent result from that. Mm -hmm. But um, you look at North Carolina in the same period with four games and they had four very different lineups and the caliber of lineup never dropped. So, you know, the... I think the biggest challenge uh, for James Clarkson and his staff going forward was how do we build and acquire depth, right? When you have, they really don't have much to trade unless they give away a big name player Mm -hmm. uh, to get more or they can negotiate something with expansion. And they only have one draft pick, you know, for, for next year. And it's not like you can say, okay, we got had six draft picks this year and we'll just develop from that. Um, Mm. you know, only five of the draft picks are still with the club. And I would imagine there's a lot of potential there, but it's, it is a constant, um, process. And I also wonder if there is expansion, not only do you have the potential of, Hey, you know, there's going to be, clubs with two or more than two national teamers are going to want to trade. But it also means there's going to be uh, a whole nother club that's competing for unsigned and undrafted players Mm -hmm. and a whole nother group that's out there competing. So, you know, at, at this point for the clubs that didn't make the playoffs every day is a chance to get ahead on that club that doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're talking about the expanded rosters, that brings up a question for me. Do you think that the coaches and the players are having to adjust to more rotation than they're used to in years past? Um, well, I, I think some some coaches don't rotate very much. Um, mm-hmm. It's been interesting this year with the ex- roster expansion. I mean, very large compared to previous years, especially when you factor in the the supplemental players. Some teams really took advantage of it. Some had to take advantage of it, mm-hmm. like Rain FC. Um, I think of how incredibly different the Rain season would have been if you didn't have those four supplemental spots, right? That they were able to keep more players active, keep more players training. Um, as opposed to great, these more p- people are injured. We suddenly have to sign someone, right? That you had, yeah. you have a bigger pool. And then we saw clubs like Sky Blue that never went over the minimum, <laughs> really, uh-huh. really. So did, um, I, did I see somewhere that Rain had started thirty-three different players this year? Pretty three, sure that's right. Yeah, three full teams. Right, right. Um, yeah, and they kind of had to, but they would not have been able to without those, those expanded rosters. So I think, you know, different clubs are in different situations, obviously North Carolina, he's not going to have much variation unless he's got the compressed schedule mm-hmm. or obviously you have your national teamers gone for international duty. And then I think there's, you know, some teams that clubs are in between. We saw a little bit of variation here and there from James Clarkson outside of international call-ups were based on, you know, who he felt was, you know, having the better week in practice. Mm -hmm. And and we saw a lot of experiments with, uh, you know, those outside back roles, but, um, so do you think there, do you think there's an advantage to greater rotation that, that Paul Riley's taking advantage of, or or is it just the greater depth? No, it's the, it's the greater depth. Okay. Um, you know, the rotation, like I said, like Vladimirovsky had to do it with the rain, but he was able to do it more successfully, more cohesively, because since the roster was bigger, those players were already with the club. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it means everybody's training. Um, you know, it means every club should be able to do eleven, the eleven training for the most part, which we haven't had in the past. Even or- Orlando, you saw um, he had a lot of variation obviously for different reasons trying to figure out different things and different Mm -hmm. players get injured um but i I think that can be a challenge for a coach and a challenge for a team if if they do get into a groove of like hey this lineup's always working this lineup's always working and i think that's one of the reasons we saw dash go those four games straight um but i think it's also that that depth factor and i think we so need expansion for NWSL because there are a lot of players sitting on the bench, like that player 12 through 15, 16, who should be 
a starter at least getting more minutes than maybe five a game. Um, that's why I feel like expanding one team in NWSL is not, we're not going to see a noticeable difference in in play quality because there are a lot of There's players. There's too many good players. Yeah. Now expanding, say we go, say we add a tenth team next year, and then they go to two more in 2021. That might be a little bit of a challenge, mm-hmm. right? But there are there are enough good players, um, and especially we've seen over the last few years, especially with the contracting. Boston in 2018, we saw a lot of players drafted and undrafted head to Europe um, to be able to play, not because there was a big contract in Europe, but because there just wasn't a space for them in NWSL. Yeah, there's complicated uh, decisions for the league to make because they're not only thinking about expansion in terms of uh, the stability within the u.s and north america but now they're competing with different with other leagues abroad and if they don't expand are they falling behind are those those players on the ends of the benches uh, starting to look elsewhere and thin out the league so uh, and even the players players on the starting 11 what if if they're looking elsewhere all right well let's let's wrap it up with one more question about the dash um Give me a, give me a few moments of, of your your favorite players other than CC Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that CC Kaiser is my favorite player. <laughs> it's just the one you're rooting for. Definitely one of the rooting, for you're rooting for her. Oh man, she she. What game was that where she hit the uh, hit against the Chicago? Against Chicago. Yeah, that was close. Um, you know, there were some moments that Sophie Schmidt had. In the game, uh, the last home game, was that against Washington? Yeah. Where she was doing some amazing things in the midfield. Uh, Shutting people down, kind of one-on-one. It it just felt like there were stretches when Washington could not move the ball past her. So that's definitely a highlight. Um, I love watching Rachel Daly go full tilt uh, for the ball, <laughs> wherever it is. If, you know, if if it's a, somebody's throwing a pass in, if she's going at the, at the opposing keeper, um, I always find that really exciting. Uh, the, the other moment that's freshest in my mind is the last goal um, that Christy Mewis scored. In the last game, right? Um, that was a good one. Yeah, was that uh, was that Sofia Huerta that had the cross on that? I think it was. Um, came in off the right side, and the cross I, I, it passed in front of um, Jamia Fields, maybe, and and went all the way through to to, to Christy, who was just right in the right place at the right time. Um, it feels like when when she scores, that's how it happens. That uh, so it's something about the way that, that she. But it's plays. not luck. But it seems as luck. It's like the the timing of her runs can mm-hmm. be can be perfect. Yeah, she, she and must, that looked like that looked like a really great team goal. Yeah, she said. Yeah, she seems to have a great sense of timing. All right. Well, Grant, thanks for taking the time to talk with me about the dash, and I look forward to a lot of your articles on KeeperNotes.com. Great. Look forward to writing them. Thanks, Jen. All right, time to wrap it up for the back four, first and foremost. NWSL playoffs kick off this weekend. We have both semifinals this Sunday, October 20th. They both air live on ESPN2. North Carolina host Rain FC. That kicks off at 1.30 Eastern, followed immediately by Chicago versus Portland at 3.30 Eastern. Note that if the first game goes into extra time, the Chicago semifinal will start broadcasting on ESPN News and then roll over to ESPN2 when the first semifinal is done. 
The following Sunday, the semifinal winners meet in the championship game in Cary, North Carolina. That game airs live on ESPN beginning 3.30 Eastern. Tickets for the championship game are on sale at nwslsoccer.com slash championship. And that site also lists a few host hotels in the area you might want to check out if you are making the trip. And I highly recommend if you're a WOSO fan to make the trip. And there's other things to do in Cary besides the game. You've got the game Sunday afternoon. I've seen a tweet that Men in Blazers will be doing a live podcast recording that Saturday night. And of course, I'm hosting WOSICO, my short word for Women's Soccer Conference, Saturday afternoon and carrying out far from the stadium. Um, Definitely worth checking out if you haven't been to one before. It's a casual, fun, fan-focused women's soccer conference. You can check out more info at keepernotes.com. Becca Morris from Utah Royals, she's confirmed as one of our um, special guests. There'll be a Q&A and attendees will have a chance to get photos and autographs from Becca. Andrew Helm, who produced the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast called Backpass that was about the foundation of the WSA and what happened when they ran out of money. Uh, He'll be there as well. And Dan Lalette and I will give a presentation about how we prep for doing Andy Russell stream broadcast. So, Go ahead, check it out, keepernotes.com. If you sign up by October 23rd, it's cheaper than if you wait till the end. And of course, the best part of Wosico is the trivia. There will be fan trivia with prizes. And then after this amazing NWSL season wraps up, uh, there will be two U.S. Women's National Team friendlies in November. They'll play Sweden in Columbus and then Costa Rica in Jacksonville. When we'll have a new coach by then, rumor has it, it could be Vladko Nanoski. And as the cliche goes, only time will tell. And then also to start November, we will have all the college varsity soccer programs that they'll be having their conference tournaments. And then we'll have the NCAA tournament bracket announced uh, most likely Monday, November 11th, as the tournament would kick off the following weekend. The final four of the Division I tournament, otherwise known as the College Cup, that will be played December 6th and 8th in San Jose, California. And you can buy tickets for that too if you go to ncaa.com all right that's it for this episode of the mixed zone women's soccer podcast many thanks to everyone who listens many thanks to everybody who tweets about it especially if you tweet about it positively and as always big thanks to sean for making this all happen but now she's out.